Welcome to A Story of Us. I'm Alex Wilkins, a graduate student in the Department of Anthropology at The Ohio State University. Thank you all for joining us for our final content episode of the Childhood Series. And I'm Emma Legan. This podcast is hosted entirely by the graduate students at The Ohio State University's Department of Anthropology. Earlier in this series, we talked about how we understand and study childhood, both in modern times and in the archaeological record. We talked about how children grow, what they eat, how we identify them, and some of the challenges they can face. But one thing we haven't talked a lot about yet is the person who is crucial to a child's existence, their mother. So today we're going to be talking a little bit about pregnancy, motherhood, and parenting. So today is all about the moms, mamas, ma's, mothers, mummies... It is. What do you call your mom, Alex? Mostly just mom, sometimes mama. So, hi, mom. (laughs) And I call my mom Mamo. I don't actually know where it came from, but I've done that ever since I was a kid. So it's always interesting to see how people refer to their mothers because for as many names as there are for mothers around the world, lots of them are pretty similar. Yeah, that's true. Linguistic anthropologists, those who study language, actually have an explanation for why this is true. Within language families, names for family members are most similar to each other. So you can have several languages that all use the same word or really similar words for family members. Right. The argument is that the words for family members will remain the same through time because everyone uses them so frequently. Words for things that are less important on a day-to-day level may change or disappear between languages more easily. Like words for particular animals or foods. If you move to a new area or the environment changes, the group won't need to use those words as frequently so they could change or even disappear from the language. But because family is so important and such an ever-present part of your life, no matter what environment you live in or what kind of work you do, the words are always used and therefore more likely to remain the same over time. Exactly. Because people need families to survive, especially their mothers, these words are more likely to remain the same in languages. Human babies are born completely dependent on caregivers. We've talked a bit about this before on this podcast. So like primate babies, they're also pretty dependent on their parents, but not really to the same extent that human babies are. This is because the brains of human babies are really underdeveloped compared to their final adult size. Primate brains have to grow after birth too, of course, just not as much as the brains of human babies. That's right. So if human babies were born with as much brain development as baby chimpanzees, human mothers would have to be pregnant for up to two years. It's been thought that the reason human pregnancies are limited to nine months is because the baby's head would grow to be too big, and as a result, the baby wouldn't be able to fit through the mother's pelvis and birth canal. One of the main functions of the female pelvis is childbirth. It has to be large enough for the skull and shoulders of an infant to fit through. But the pelvis also has to accommodate the needs of walking on two legs, which is what we call bipedalism. Your major center of gravity falls near your pelvis. So for females, pelvis size and shape is a trade-off between bipedality and childbirth. The human pelvis has to be wide enough to allow a baby to pass through, but it also has to be narrow enough to allow us to walk on two legs. Because the human pelvis is so narrow, the mother and baby have to work together as a team during childbirth. Right. Once labor begins, the mother begins to secrete hormones that loosen the ligaments of the pelvis. And this allows the bones to separate a little bit more to make room for the baby. The baby also has to rotate during birth to fit through the pelvis. The fontanelle or soft spot on a baby's skull where the bones have not yet fused together, helps facilitate the birthing process by allowing flexibility and movement of the skull bones. So you can see how childbirth is a collaborative effort between the bodies of the mother and the baby. Her ligaments are loosening as her uterus contracts, and the baby's cranial bones are accommodating the size of the pelvis as the baby is rotating in order to fit through the canal. 
Of course, if the baby's head is too big, it won't fit through the birth canal. Since a bigger, more developed brain requires a bigger head, it makes sense that human babies are born at a more underdeveloped stage. Another hypothesis for why babies are born with such underdeveloped brains is that the mother is no longer able to provide the nutrition needed for the baby after about nine months, just through her own body alone. So in other words, brain and body development within the womb appears to be limited by maternal metabolism. That's because fetal metabolism is very fast, so babies take a lot of their mother's energy. When the baby is no longer receiving adequate energy from the mother, fetal hormones trigger the secretion of a hormone in the mother called oxytocin. Oxytocin, in turn, stimulates the dilation of the cervix and contraction of the uterus and loosening of the pelvic ligaments, allowing the baby to be born. Once the baby is born, its metabolism slows down, but its brain continues to develop very rapidly. This rapid development of the brain means that the infant is quickly learning and soaking up all sorts of cultural information, and we talked about this in the first episode of the series. Because babies are born with such underdeveloped brains, and because they have such a long period of immaturity, they are completely dependent on caregivers for a prolonged period of time. The babies require other people to carry them around because they can't walk, clean themselves, and feed themselves because they can't find their own food. Even if they could find their own food, they would not be able to eat it because their first baby tooth won't erupt for several months after birth. For the first several months of life, babies survive entirely on breast milk, or formula, but today we'll limit our discussion to breast milk. Breast milk provides all of the fat, protein, carbohydrates, and other nutrients necessary for a baby and actually helps build the baby's immune system. And for the mother, breastfeeding is actually incredibly expensive in terms of energy. Mothers have to eat enough food to meet their own energetic requirements as well as those of the baby. And if they don't, their bodies might resort to using their fat stores to make sure the breast milk is sufficient. No matter what the mother is eating, the nutritional quality of breast milk stays pretty much the same. Even if the environment is poor and there isn't much food, the mother's body will buffer the infant to the effects of that environment by maintaining a steady diet for the infant. This concept of maternal buffering was brought up by Dr. Guatelli Steinberg and Genevieve Richie Ewing a few episodes ago. A mother begins lactating or producing breast milk once a baby is born and will continue to lactate until the time of weaning. In humans, the time and process of weaning can be quite variable. The introduction of other foods to the diet can begin once an infant is around about six months old. Before that, they are typically fed exclusively by breast milk or formula. And when the exact shift to harder foods and the end of breastfeeding occurs, though, are decisions made by the mother and child together. This is really important. Lactation will continue as long as nursing is occurring. And that being said, the feedback mechanisms that stimulate milk production can shut off really quickly. Once nursing stops, milk production may stop within even just a few days. The end of nursing can be initiated by either the mother or the child. But they tend to work together, though. A mother may offer harder foods, but an infant might not show interest. And later, the infant might prefer hard foods to breast milk. And there are all kinds of cultural and medical recommendations for when weaning should begin and when nursing should completely cease, but there's still a lot of variability within that. Yeah, and there's variability within and between modern human groups. Depending on a mother's circumstances, she might breastfeed for a longer or shorter amount of time than the other mothers in her same group. And there are certain cultural expectations regarding when a mother should or shouldn't continue to breastfeed. That's true. The socio-cultural expectations for mothers can really affect the experience of motherhood. How these expectations and practices have changed over time within and between cultures is also something really interesting to consider. From an archaeological perspective, one of the ways that we can learn about weaning age in the past is by looking at skeletal remains like teeth. 
As we said before on this podcast, people have two sets of teeth. We have our deciduous teeth, or baby teeth, and our permanent adult teeth. Because permanent teeth are growing when you're a child, we can use permanent teeth to figure out when a person was weaned. And this is basically because we are what we eat. Right. The chemicals from our food, like carbon, nitrogen, and barium, are used to build our bones and teeth. These chemicals come in different forms called isotopes, and these isotopes have different weights. For example, nitrogen-14 is lighter than nitrogen-15, and this isotope is particularly important when discerning weaning age. Because of the rate at which these chemicals are processed in the body, we have different isotope ratios depending on our trophic level. And your trophic level is basically just what level you are in the food chain. So for example, a cow is at a higher trophic level than the grass that it eats. Since a nursing baby is essentially consuming its mother's tissues, it's actually at a higher trophic level than the mother. And as a result, the baby will have a different isotopic signature than the mother. Once the child switches from a diet of breast milk to harder foods, the isotopic signature changes to reflect its lower trophic level. We can run chemical tests on the permanent teeth to figure out how old a person was when he or she was weaned. Feeding is just one type of caregiving, but there are other interesting aspects of caregiving, especially when you think about who gives care. Mothers are the ones who usually provide breast milk and the majority of care, but the care of infants is certainly not limited to mothers. Caregivers can also be fathers, siblings, aunts, uncles, friends, and really anyone perceived to be a part of that community. The practice where offspring receive care from individuals other than their mothers is called cooperative breeding, and it's practiced among a number of primate species, including humans. Cooperative breeding is often characterized by something called allomaternal care. And allomaternal care just means that somebody other than the mother is caring for the baby for some amount of time. This doesn't mean that the mother is not providing any care to the baby, just that she's not the sole caregiver. So this is in contrast to species like orangutans, who do not practice cooperative breeding. Orangutan females live in isolation and usually only have contact with one adult male at any given time. When orangutan females have babies, that female is responsible for all of the food, care, and protection of her juvenile. Orangutans have a really long juvenile period, too. So orangutan mothers invest years into a single offspring. The amount of time between births is called the interbirth interval. This can be more than nine years for orangutans. Larger group sizes and cooperative breeding can reduce the interbirth interval by allowing a female to reproduce again quickly after an infant is weaned, so she doesn't have to wait until that juvenile is fully independent before beginning to raise another baby. And that's because other caregivers can share the responsibility of caring for, feeding, and protecting the first infant. Daycare, babysitting, even spending the night at a friend or grandma's would all be examples of allomothering. Cooperative breeding is also characterized by delayed dispersal patterns. In other words, the group into which an infant is born is the group that the child will stay in until adulthood. For example, children often continue to live with their parents or their natal group for many years. In our society, they'll usually stay until they're about 18 years old. But despite their long childhoods, mothers are able to raise multiple children at once, not just one every 18 years, because they have the help of others. Because more than one offspring can be produced and raised over the course of those 18 years, and because those offspring are cared for and protected by multiple individuals, the fitness of the group increases and more offspring are likely to survive. Like we said, cooperative breeding can increase the number of children women can have, and in humans, it can even decrease weaning age. In addition to food and care, aloe mothers can provide breast milk, formula, or weaning foods to children who aren't their own. 
Wet nursing, for example, is a form of allomothering. Wet nursing, or breastfeeding an infant other than one's own, has been practiced among humans for millennia. In fact, ancient Roman doctors advised wet nursing immediately following childbirth to allow the mother to recover. Wet nursing was practiced in Western societies until the 19th century, when many women began to work outside of the domestic sphere. There was also a societal expectation that wealthy mothers should not breastfeed their own children. Allomothering in the form of wet nursing is practiced by a number of non-human primate species as well. Female Cebus monkeys, for example, nurse infants other than their own. Many non-human primates practice other forms of allomothering as well. Squirrel monkeys and macaques carry each other's infants and protect them from predators. In addition to decreasing the interbirth interval, allomothering among non-human primates allows females to spend more time foraging, which increases the chances of survival for actually both themselves and their offspring. Allomothering doesn't just benefit the offspring and its mother, but it is also thought to benefit the allomother. So, for example, a young allomother benefits by learning to care for its offspring so that she'll be better prepared to care for her own offspring. This is the learning to mother hypothesis. Think about it like this. Human kids might play with dollhouses, or just playhouse, pretending to be moms and dads. We know that kids imitate behaviors that they see, so it's not uncommon to see a child pretending to nurse her baby doll or change its diaper. You might even remember engaging in this kind of behavior as a kid. So, for example, when my younger brother was born, I got a baby doll um, that my family refers to as baby poop slot. It was one of those baby dolls that you could feed and then it would poop out its food. And so I was fascinated and I loved it and I, and I really tended to that baby feeding it and taking care of it. And this is just one example. So for another one, think back to when you were in high school or maybe middle school. Maybe you babysat your neighbor or your younger cousin. This is the learning to mother hypothesis in action. In addition to making a little extra money for prom tickets, you are also learning how to care for children. So there does appear to be some sort of support for both the learning to mother hypothesis and the hypothesis that allomothering increases group fitness by decreasing weaning age and the inner birth interval. Studying mothers can help us understand the relationship between mothers and children and how children are raised, but also the role social interactions play in group interactions. So this is the last episode that Emma and I will do together for the Childhood series. And this is actually also the last content episode that you'll hear me on. You'll hear me on a couple of bonus episodes and other conversation episodes, but this is my last big content episode here with Emma. And so it really has been a wonderful ride for me, and I'm really excited to see where this podcast goes in the future. And it's been great having you, Alex. Uh, There will be a new host with me in the fall and plenty of bonus episodes between now and then. So stay tuned. And of course, there's still one more conversation episode for the Childhood Series. So next time, you'll hear from Dr. Barbara Piperata and Dr. Lexine Trask. Both Dr. Piperata and Dr. Trask study mothers and motherhood. So look forward to that in the upcoming weeks. And in the meantime, subscribe to the podcast, like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at A Story of Us OSU, or you can check out our website, anthropology.osu.edu. And also, please leave us a review of the show on iTunes. The more reviews we have, the easier it is for people to find this show. As always, this podcast is produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. We hope you join us next time as we continue to explore A Story of Us, Our Humanity, History, and Department.